All right, well, the Lord's going to carry us through this, isn't he? Well, the title of this morning's sermon is This I Pray, This I Pray. As you think about prayer in general, God intended for believers to enjoy a close, personal, and intimate relationship with him. In fact, whether or not this is currently true determines your present spiritual well-being, and I hope you see that. God had a plan that you would have this intimacy, this, intimacy, this closeness, this relationship on a day-by-day basis with him. Now, if that's true and you're allowing him in your life, you're welcoming, welcoming him into your life, so to speak, you're making room for him, you're not putting him last on the list of things and trying to only squeeze him in when everything else has been done, but you're wanting to take him with you, allow him to be a part of your thinking and your everyday actions as you go through every moment of the day. Now, if that's true, you're going to be doing well spiritually. Why? Because when we're trusting in the Lord, he's the one then who is leading and directing our paths. When God is leading and directing our paths, then our lives are full. Our lives are abundant. Our lives are exactly what God had planned for us. Our lives have value. They're, they have redeeming value to them because it's God who is driving the ship, steering the ship, driving the bus, mix two of them up there. But when God's the one who's doing that, then we're guaranteed, we're, we're certain to have spiritual success because he's the one who's now working. We've gotten ourselves out of that equation. Well, as you think about spiritual well-being, the presence of regular communication with God generally indicates a healthy relationship. Now, that would be true of any human relationship. If you, if you want to know how healthy is this relationship, just consider how regularly do we have communication. And generally speaking, now there's some kinds of communication that aren't signs of a healthy relationship. That's a caveat there. I've you know, certainly you, you hear that from time to time too. But I'm talking about normal communication. If there's a lot of that, in all, in all likelihood, you're enjoying that person, whether it's a friend or a child or a spouse, there's some, there's some intimacy and closeness there because there's that regular line of communication. You're talking to them and they're talking to you. But this absolutely correlates to the spiritual walk, to the spiritual realm. When there's a lot of communication with God, Now, how does that happen? So if there's a lot of communication from him towards you, it's going to have to involve you reading his word because the way he he saw fit to communicate to you was through his written word. He wrote you a love letter. He wrote you his, uh, he gave you a narrative from beginning to end that told the story that he wanted you to know. And so then the question is, are you spending time reading it so that he could communicate the essence of that story to you? so that you'd have a sense of what is it all about. Who is this God that I worship? What is his plan for me for today? What is his plan for me for the future? How is he going to deal with the problem that I have, which is revealed in Scripture to be that I was born associated or identified with a race of sinners, and as a result of that sin, there had been this barrier that was separating me from a holy God? How is God going to deal with that problem? How could I ever get to be where he is if, in fact, sin is getting in the way? And so this story, starting in the very beginning, we've been doing this a little bit with some of our lessons recently on church fellowship nights. We've done two. We did one in February. We skipped a few months and came back to it. But these pictures of an innocent has to die in the place of the guilty, that there's several pictures of that we can track throughout the narrative of the Bible as God is building this story towards the culmination of it or the punchline of it, which is that Jesus Christ is going to be 
that innocent substitute who's going to take the place of the guilty so that he could break down that barrier of sin, that he could die and pay the debt that you and I owed because of our sinfulness, that we wouldn't have to die for our sins, as the Bible said, that the wages of sin is death and that there was none righteous, no, not one, that all had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As the Bible had declared, everyone was in this predicament, then the storyline of the Bible is revealing as it goes through God's, who God is, but also, in part, one of the themes is the thread or the storyline of how is God going to fix or, or redeem or make right or make it possible for a sinful man to be in a right relationship with him as a holy God. And so as you track that message, the reality is that that's how God is speaking to you through his word. So in terms of communication with him, will I realize that God wrote this book, he wrote it through human authors, but he wrote it for my good and for my benefit and as his means of communicating his truth to me. Now, we have general revelation in nature and some other things of that sort, but the special revelation from God to man is found in His Word. That's how God wants to talk to you. Then the question is, is there going to be the reciprocal side of that equation where you are talking to Him? Now, He does talk to you without using words as He answers your prayers, so when you pray to Him, He says He's going to answer those prayers. Isn't God talking to you, in a sense, as He undertakes in your life to show His faithful character as He shows up time and time again and provides answers to your prayers. Now, are those answers always what you're looking for? No. Sometimes it's yes. Sometimes it's no. Sometimes it's wait. Sometimes it's my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect through your weakness so that you can conclude after hearing that. that That's God's response that when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That can be your conclusion from that. So are you talking to God? Are you letting him talk to you? That's a sign of, am I doing well spiritually? Now, could you pump that out in some kind of a fake and phony and artificial and mechanical kind of a way? Yeah. And would that, make, would that mean that you're doing well spiritually? No. That would be you going through the motions with no authenticity behind it. But the reality is that if you're ca- keeping your eyes fixed on the author and finish your faith, Jesus Christ, you're letting the Spirit of God work in your life. The Spirit of God is going to give you an interest and a desire to want to have a close, intimate relationship with the God of the universe, your creator. And when that's true, you're going to be thriving, spiritually speaking. So now, of course, the reverse is true too. If the presence of regular communication is generally an indicator of a healthy relationship, then the opposite is true too. If there is no regular communication, then in all likelihood, there isn't a healthy relationship or a positive spiritual relationship that you're enjoying with God at this present moment. Now, as you think about this, it's probably valuable to consider how real, just ask yourself this, how real, how important, how close is God to me? Will I even talk to him or include him in my life? And a lot of times I think we believe something is true. We have a perception of things that doesn't actually line up with reality. Oftentimes we associate spiritual health with certain things that in and of themselves do not actually guarantee or indicate spiritual health. For example, if you're here this morning, it's true that God in his words puts a really high emphasis, a really 
He places a really high level of importance on the local church, on the gathering of believers together, to worship together, to learn together, to encourage each other, to come alongside each other, to pray together, to sing together. There's a high value placed on that as you read through the New Testament, especially the letters of Paul establishing local churches in every community he went to, establishing church leadership in every community he went to, as he sent back and had elders and deacons appointed in these churches so there'd be some functional leadership. As he preaches over and over again the importance of availing yourself of the hearing of the Word of God. So is there value in that? Yes. But just checking a box of attendance by itself without ever having a heart that wants to learn something or grow closer to the Lord or, God forbid, let Him make changes in your life, that doesn't indicate spiritual well-being. Let me say that again. If you have no interest in letting God make changes in your life, then you're not in a good place, spiritually speaking. So often we want God to just conform Himself to our own set of expectations to our own patterns and habits in our life where we say I'm going to figure out my way of life I'm going to figure out my priorities they're going to be what they're going to be and then I'm going to tack God on at the very end of all that he's he's not in fact going to be I'm not in fact open to him directing me and changing me and transforming me into something that I wouldn't otherwise be I'm not really interested in having the mind of Christ and having him make his kind of priorities and perspective his way of thinking my way of thinking I'm not actually interested in that and one sign that that's not true that that you actually don't even want that is you're not even praying for it you're not, you're not going to the throne of grace and you're with a, an attitude and a posture that says, Lord, change me. Lord, make me more like your son. Lord, convince me that you're real. Convince me that the Christian life is worth living. Convince me that I can't do this on my own. I can't do this through my own strength. Remind me of how much you love me. Remind me of how valuable it would be for me to spend life with you. Are those the kinds of prayers that we're having? And often they're not. In, in part because we're not praying at all sometimes, or if we are praying, we're not praying for those kinds of things. To God, make me who you want me to be and help me to get out of the way. You see, when you think about it, if you are communicating with God, and I hope you are, then the next natural question is what are you talking about? You know, again, I said it last Sunday. I've still been listening to the song, so I'll say it again here today. The song, I'm talking to Jesus. If you're going through your day talking to the Lord, what are you talking to Him about? And God wants to be included in everything, so nothing should be off the table. So sometimes you think about what are the things that I'm talking to God about? Well, it should be everything. But often as you're thinking about the prayers of Paul and what we've learned from this series is that sometimes our general tendency is to pray about the temporal realm, to pray about physical matters more than spiritual matters. And the takeaway is, again, it's not we shouldn't be praying about those things. We should be praying about them. We should, praying about, we should be praying about and talking to God about everything that we're going through. But that means not just the physical or temporal realm, as you grow in your faith, your focus should gradually shift more and more from the temporal to the eternal. As you grow in your faith, your focus should shift more and more from the physical to the spiritual. And that maturity as you grow, is, it should be reflected in your prayers. So that as you pray, you're starting to pray as much for or more for spiritual health, spiritual needs, spiritual success, as much as you're praying for that raise 
or that promotion or that physical healing or that financial concern. Now, again, do not leave here saying, the pastor saying, I shouldn't be praying about those things. You should be. Living life with God means that you'd be talking to Him about everything you're going through. What I'm saying is that what we're seeing from Paul's prayers is that as we grow in our understanding and we grow in our maturity, that part of what we want to talk to God about is our spiritual needs, and not just our spiritual needs, but the spiritual needs of others. And Paul's prayers constantly reinforce the importance of considering spiritual matters in prayer. I hope that 15 lessons into this, or this is the 15th lesson, that you're seeing that, that you're convinced of that. That there's a great importance in praying about spiritual matters when it comes to your prayer life as directed to the Father. So here we have another example here this morning in Philippians chapter 1. You obviously see it on the screen. I'm there. Are you there? I had to say that because I'm never there, but I'm here today. All right, I don't hear a lot of page turning, so let's read through this section that Lord willing will get through. As some of you know, this is going to be a lot for somebody like me, but this is verses 3 through 11 is, is all one, it's all one prayer. You could possibly break it down into two prayers, but it's all about prayer. Starts with a prayer of thanksgiving in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, so we pick up the prayer part of it here again. This I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So there's quite a bit here this morning. We'll work our way through it. This first section, we have this prayer of thanksgiving. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, as I've said, here we have this first section. There's a prayer of thanksgiving. Paul is just thanking God for something specific in his life. But it's interesting that what he's thanking God for, specifically, again, is fellow believers. He's thanking him that these other believers have been able to participate and partner with him with a common objective, with a common mission, a common goal of lifting up Jesus Christ, putting the spotlight on Jesus Christ, proclaiming the gospel message. And that's why as Paul has talked to believers in other parts of the New Testament, he says that his desire would, that, would be that believers would have unity, but unity of purpose. Not necessarily unity of every opinion or every perspective, but unity of purpose, unity of mission. That we would be, what, striving together for the furtherance of the gospel. And this is what he's thanking God for as it relates to these believers. I was talking to somebody at a wedding that I did yesterday afternoon who had come to this church once in a while, and they were kind of discouraged, I think, by some of the different splits that there have been here over the years, and they had family members on both sides that had been a part of the church, and they'd come here once in a while. And we talked about the idea that it's important to 
make distinctions and to seek biblical clarity as it comes to the things of faith. But we also talked about the idea that sometimes proving you're right can be overrated as it relates to secondary matters and not primary matters. Sometimes in an effort to always be right or to show how much you know, you end up causing division with people when, in fact, the primary focus of unity was on the ability to have a clear gospel message that we could strive together to further in terms of shining God's light into the darkness around us. Now, as we study God's Word, does the Word of God have other doctrinal truths that are important? Yes. Some of them we've actually seen fit to put in a doctrinal statement for this church. Now, those are things that are important. And at times, you might run into somebody that you have some disagreement about a secondary doctrine besides the gospel message and, you know, eternal security would be a core doctrine that because it's God who did the saving to begin with, if you accept His salvation that He offers, naturally you can't lose it because you did nothing to get it to begin with. So that's a core doctrine of our church that we wouldn't agree to disagree about. That's something that we'd have to take a stand specifically about because it's something that robs somebody of their joy, their security, if they don't understand that. It might actually rob them of their salvation if, in fact, in one part of the recesses of their mind, they think that they have to do something to maintain or preserve something that God got started. Then, in that instance, maybe they never did put their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on their behalf, if they think that there remains something for them to do, that wouldn't be accepting the completeness of Christ's sacrifice, His work and His payment on their behalf on Calvary. So that's a pretty core or essential doctrine. But there's other ones that, you know, they're secondary, and we're making something primary, and we're splitting up, we're breaking away from each other over things that sometimes should have been just an agreement to disagree. I'm not saying in the context of our church history, I wasn't old enough to know a lot about what happened back then. But I'm just saying in the context of everyday Christian interactions, oftentimes we get at each other's, we get on each other's bad side or we have division amongst us about things that either one, aren't biblical at all, they're extra biblical, they're, they're something that just falls into the category of personal opinion, or they are biblical but they're minor matters. And we actually get at each other about it in a way that we stop striving together for the common goal, which the original mission, the primary, the primary focus that should have been the gospel of Jesus Christ. In any event, I hope I communicated that clearly. I'm not saying there aren't things that are worth standing for in terms of doctrine, and sometimes that does cause separation. It sometimes does cause division. I'm saying in, in our everyday lives, though, we think about the things that have divided you from other people or even other believers in this church and ask yourself sometimes, how much of that was doctrinal? How much of it was critical doctrine? And the answer is, I think, sadly, very rarely was that the case. I only can say that an- anecdotally, 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 uh, someone say it correctly? Anecdotally? Because I've heard it several times. You know, when you talk to people, you say, what is your beef with so-and-so? Now, half of the time, they can't remember. (laughs) What I mean is they can't even articulate it in a way that would be convincing to you. Other times, when when they actually think about it, you stand there as as an objective person who wasn't a part of it, and you say, that seems pretty minor. It seems like something we ought to be able to move past. That was not a part of the message here this morning. That's just extra. 
And so as we start our, our section here on Paul's prayers, that I all got to all that because of our fellow believers and how we should be thankful for them, praying for them because we're a part of the same mission. Now, he says that it's simply the main thought is, I thank my God. Now, thankfulness involves a response of gratitude for undeserved generosity. Did God have to give us one another? Now, some of you, if you're in that wrong mindset, you're saying, I wish he wouldn't have. But did he have to give us one another? The answer is no. But he did so that we could have a body of other believers that we could be joined and knitted together with, that where we lack certain resources, certain strengths, certain giftedness even, that another person would be able to chip that in and every, every member would do its part and we'd be able to thrive and function in our spiritual lives in a way we couldn't apart from God's design to have other people come alongside of us and meld together with us in a way that would make us complete. Now, we're complete positionally. We're complete in terms of spiritual blessings. We have access to be partakers even of the divine nature. We have the ability to have victory over sin. We have the ability to trust the Lord. But we're not all, we don't, we're not all complete in the sense that we individually possess all of the qualities that human beings could possess in terms of, again, gifts and talents and even various other abilities that God maybe would have given us. This is a beautiful picture when you think about the things that you're lacking being met by this union with all these other believers. It's absolutely wonderful that God came up with that plan. He didn't have to. Are you thankful to Him that He did? That's the same picture that you have really when you think even about a marriage that's functioning properly is that God would take two people who had some limitations, had some flaws, had some faults, and he'd put them together in a way that when they're trusting the Lord, they would be stronger together than they are apart, especially when they're woven around him. Is that always the case? No, because often when they're coming together, it's not coming together around the fabric or the thread of Jesus Christ. He isn't the foundation of it. But when he is, we're better off together than we would be apart. And Paul thanks God for these other believers. Now, the rest of the clauses describe or add additional details about Paul's thankfulness here in the rest of these verses 3 through 5. So, I thank my God. There's our main thought. Now, he gives more information. So, he starts with my God. I hope you see that it indicates that this gratitude is directed to a real and personal God. This isn't a God who is distant and far away to Paul. This is my God. And if you're here this morning and you've never wrapped your mind around the idea that the God of the universe is the God of angel armies, He is a friend of mine. The one who reigns forever is actually the line. He is a friend of mine. It's my God. It's, it's not, yes, it may be somebody else's God too. In fact, millions of people have placed their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He's their God too, but He's your God. And do you see him that way? A personal, present, and real God. And that's what Paul's perspective comes out here, even as he uses just this simple addition of the word my in front of God. I think my God. He could have just said, I thank God, but he includes this little word my. I thank my God. Now he says, upon how often? Upon every remembrance of you. And it just reminds you to be thankful for fellow believers. Every time he thinks of them, he says he thanks God for them. Now, would to God that was true in our lives, that every time you think of another believer, instead of some other emotion coming up, that the thing that comes to your mind is, I am thankful for that other believer. 
Thank God for that believer. And that's Paul saying, every time I remember you, I thank God for you. Now, it assumes, of course, that you actually consider or remember other believers. Because he says, every, every time I remember you, then I thank God for you. But then we're going to see that he does this often. The question is, are you even thinking about other believers? Are you even considering what they're going through? Are you, still, are you so caught up in your own life, in your own things, that there is no time for anyone else? And that's why Paul, he says, I don't want you just to think of your own matters. I want you to be thinking and mindful of the matters of others as well. So then we go on. It says, always in every prayer of mine. And that indicates the frequency of the thanksgiving. He says, always I'm thanking God for you in every prayer of mine. Convicting, isn't it? And then he says, making requests for you all with joy. And that speaks of the intercessory prayer done with happiness instead of any sense of obligation. I'm not looking at the prayer list that the pastor emailed out this week. I'm not looking at that prayer list here for our church and feeling some sense of obligation. I better go through this. I better force my way through this prayer list. That's not the perspective. He says, I'm making requests. I'm interceding with God on your behalf and I'm doing it with joy. And you see, he says, I'm making a request for you all. He's not necessarily focusing and cherry-picking the people that he's going to be praying for. Now the prayer goes on to identify a specific reason for Paul's thankfulness. And the main thought that, that is expanded now is he starts with, I thank my God, then he expands it now to, for your fellowship in the gospel. And that's the main full idea of these three verses, is I thank my God for what specifically? For your fellowship in the gospel. Now, for your fellowship refers to a shared objective or partnership. We, we share in this mission. Now, in the gospel identifies that specific shared mission. The mission is to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. I love to tell the story of Jesus and his love, and I hope you love to tell the story of Jesus and his love, and together we can strive together for the furtherance of the gospel. That's the mission. We can minister to one another in love and we can strive together for the furtherance of the gospel. And I can't say that enough that we don't have to complicate the mission, friends. The mission of this church is simple. On one side of the bus, it's striving together for the furtherance of the gospel. On the other side of the bus, it's ministering to one another in love. It's not more complicated than that. That's the task that God has asked us to focus on through His power, through His enablement, through His leading. And the question is, will we? Now, I've talked about this in terms of trains. We're talking about buses here today, I guess. As we talk about buses, is every bus squeak-free? No. Just, just walk alongside the sidewalk when a bus goes by or stands still. Are there some rattles on buses? Your average bus has seen some wear, hasn't it? They're fairly expensive, so they don't replace them that often. If they've been ridden on by young people for any period of time, they're likely somewhat destroyed. So is our bus perfect if the bus is this local church? No, it's got some rust, got some squeaks, some rattles, some louder squeaks than other. I'm not talking to you. That's someone else. Squeaks and rattles. 
The engine backfires from time to time. We've had some flats along the way. We need an oil change. But striving together for the furtherance of the gospel and ministering to one another in love. So that's what he says I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for your fellowship in the gospel. Now, how long has that fellowship been taking place? He says from the first day until now. And it speaks to the consistency of these believers maintained focus and continued pursuit of the shared objective. Now, what was the shared objective? The gospel, the mission of advancing the gospel. Now, how long had this been? Well, he met them about 10 years earlier on his first visit. So what Paul is saying, I'm, I've been praying for you, I've been thanking God for you, for this common or shared objective or partnership we've had in the furtherance of the gospel, and it's been going on for 10 years now. From the first day until now. And you think about this, why he could be so thankful for that. You know, he talks often about we have this mission that we need to be focused on and we shouldn't easily be shaken from. And here's a verse where he talks about the two different possibilities as two separate passages, but where Paul talks about this mission. And the one possibility, which he's thanking God that they fall into this category, he can celebrate this and thank God for this, that they've remained focused on the mission. They've continued the pursuit for the shared objective. In 1 Corinthians, he gives this advice in verse 58 of chapter 15 to the believers there. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, this is his goal for them too. But this was apparently true of these Philippian believers. But he's saying this about the Corinthian believers. He says, be steadfast, immovable, always what? Abounding in the work of the Lord. What is the work of the Lord? As it relates to the primary emphasis, the primary emphasis is on living to lift up Jesus Christ. To shine the glorious light of the gospel into the darkness around us as we are living in and among in the midst of a crooked and perverse world. Among whom, Paul says, you shine as lights. But is a light very effective if it's hidden? Of course not. Is a flashlight very useful if the switch is turned off? If the batteries have run down? Who's tried to use a flashlight recently with batteries run down? I was crawling under my cabin about a week ago, pitch black. Giant flashlight. One of these ones that you could, you know, beat attackers off with. One of these mag lights. My son ran and got it. Wasn't enough light. Came back with the flashlight. A flashlight hasn't had new batteries in a number of years. It couldn't, elim- it couldn't illuminate your hand stuck out six inches in front of your body. Now, was there a light there? Yeah. It was a really, really feeble light. But not even light enough to shine one inch. So sometimes do we need to get our batteries recharged as it, comes to, as, as it relates to the mission? Yeah, how do we do that? By the renewing of our mind. Where does that come from? By the Word of God. By allowing the Spirit of God to renew us, to recharge us, to see that the energy is not coming from us. That we're run down because we've been tapping into our own strength instead of leaning on the Lord's strength and relying and depending on the Lord's strength. So always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that, your labor is not in vain. Now, which, what labor? Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That labor is not in vain. There's plenty of other labor that's completely in vain because you're setting aside 
you're focusing on the temporary. The temporary is going to pass away. It's only the eternal things that are going to have any lasting value. Now, what's the alternative? He says, this is my goal for you, just like I thank God that this is true of you Philippian believers, but what's the alternative? Galatians 1, he speaks to another church now in Galatia, verses 6 and 7, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ. To what? To a different gospel. Is it possible to not only fail to proclaim and shine the light of the gospel, but in fact to turn away from the gospel to a different gospel? Now, are these believers that he's writing to? Yes. He's writing to believers. Does that mean they understood the gospel at one point in time? Yes. Does that mean that they could be distracted, deceived? That they could turn away from the gospel? Yeah. And he says it's not another of the same kind. It's a different altogether. Because there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel. So Paul is thanking God for these believers and he's saying it could have gone a different way. I'm thanking God that you have remained consistent in this shared partnership, that you've participated in the mission to proclaim the gospel and you've done it from the first day until now. Wouldn't it be nice if somebody could say that about us? That you've stayed consistent to the, mess, to the mission from the first day until now. And by God's grace, the gospel has been presented clearly. I guess this is my opinion, but it's been presented clearly here for decades. Is it possible for that, though, to die out? Is it possible for us to lose our first love? Is it possible for us to fail to communicate to the next generation, some of which are sitting here this morning, in awe for God, how awesome God is? We just fail to communicate that very effectively. We fail to communicate to them how important it is to put God front and center in our thinking, to have Him on the launching pad of our minds. We forget to do that. We don't care enough to do that. And without our example or witness, they never see what tasting, they never get an example of what tasting and seeing what, that the Lord is good is all about. Something to be mindful. And if you're a young person here and you have been convinced that God is real, that He is important in your life, that He's worth serving, then the question is, how can you be a good example of that to others that people have other people that God has put in your life. You know, it's not good enough to just be convinced of it yourself without seeing that God wants to shine His light through you into the lives of other people that are in your life. That's other believers, and certainly that's the lost who need to hear the message about Jesus and His love. So we move on here to the next verse, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ the day of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 6 here represents a standalone thought brought about by the previous discussion. The idea is, and in light of your past steadfastness, your past consistency, your past participation, your past partnership, in light of that, I'm confident that you will continue and stay the course until the Lord returns. And good work here refers to the applied benefits of the believer's identification with Christ. It includes a righteous standing before God in terms of justification, be, being declared to be in a right standing with God on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ that was applied to your account the moment you decided to quit trusting in anything else or anyone else and to put all of your trust and confidence in what Jesus Christ completed fully when he died, was buried, and rose again for you as he paid the debt that you owed. 
And from that moment on, because of your faith in what He had done, not because of anything you had contributed, because of your faith in what He had done, you were put in a right standing positionally with God, you were born again, you were adopted into the family of God, and He said, I'll never let you go. So that's part of it. But then another part of it is a progressive deliverance from the power of the sin nature. As God has given us victory in what's left of our lives here on earth, to have victory over the sin nature if we would appropriate the spiritual riches and the spiritual blessing and the spiritual power that we have with the Spirit of God living inside of us, that we could have victory over sin. For the Spirit of life and godliness has given me victory over the law of sin and death. Now, he starts that by saying there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ. We're not to be living with this perspective that I'm, I have this guilt or shame or remorse or regret. I'm always feeling bad that I can't get this right. That's not the idea at all. God isn't condemning you. God isn't angry at you. You're not a sinner at the hand of an angry God as some of the Puritan writers would write about, like you're somehow being held by God by a thin thread over the lake of fire and that though the thread is holding now, it could be cut loose at any time. We know that that's not how families work. When you're born into a family, when you're adopted into a family, your whole identity changes. You're now a forever part of that family regardless of any kind of breakdowns in the communication, breakdowns in relationship, even distance that is caused physically and emotionally and even that takes place within many families. It doesn't change the fact that your identity is now in that family. You're born into that family. And so on one hand, God says, that is a truth. You're not, there's no condemnation in that. But yet on the other hand, I want to change you into something different. I want to make you more like my son. I want to conform you or transform you into the image of my son. And the way that that's done is through the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God working inside of me that can mold me into something that is different from what I am currently. If I could just see myself as a lump of clay that God is wanting to, to mold and to bend and to curve into something different, something useful, so that I could be an instrument that would have value, that it would have usefulness to the cause, to the mission. If I could see that that's going to be done by the Spirit of God working in my life, that the Spirit of God has given me freedom over sin. I don't have to be in bondage to it. The chains have been broken. Now, is the temptation there? Yes. Is the influence there? Yes. The world is constantly flashing those temptations at us. The sin nature is constantly trying to influence our thinking. But is victory available? Yes, because the Spirit of God has given me freedom over the law of sin and death. The Spirit of life and godliness. So as the Spirit of God works in my thinking, I can have victory as I keep my eyes focused on the Lord and let the Spirit work in my life. And then the, the prospect of an in, in more, in more, immortal and incorruptible body is in view as you think about God completing the good work, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it into the day of Christ. But the primary context here is present, practical Christian living. It's sanctification, this idea that this work has begun in you, and I have this confidence based on your past success, your past having learned to trust the Lord, to depend on the Lord. That brought about consistency. It brought about you participating and partnering in this mission. And I'm confident that, you're, that that's going to continue until the day of Christ, but who is going to make that success possible? See, the confidence ultimately comes from knowing it was God that had been doing the work in and through these believers. You see this phrase, he has begun. 
You see the second phrase, he will complete. Now you have to add the he. But he has begun and he will complete. And that's what gives Paul this sense of confidence that this path that they're on, this path they've been on for 10 years, that that's going to continue because they've learned to trust the Lord to provide the strength to make the mission a success. So he began this and he will complete this. But again, I believe the primary emphasis there is on sanctification, Not positional sanctification, but practical sanctification. Now, we keep moving here. Verse 7 and 8 says, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And we'll move through this a bit quicker. But as you look at this first phrase, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, it indicates the basis of Paul's thoughts or continued interest in these believers. And he says, because I have you in my heart. And that carries this idea of you are always on my mind. Now ask yourself, is that true generally of other believers in your life? It's right for me to think this about you because I'm always thinking about you. You're always on my mind. Some of you are thinking of Willie Nelson's tune. (laughs) Maybe I didn't love you. (laughs) That was a bad Willie Nelson impersonation. Some of you know I can play guitar like Willie Nelson because I'm, I'm never on the beat, but apparently I can't sing like him. But are other believers always on your mind? That's, I think, the takeaway here. That's not even ex- exactly what Paul is talking about. He's saying, the reason I'm so thankful for you is because what I just got done saying, I've been able to, you've been able to be my partners. You've been able to participate with me in the common mission for these last, this last decade, for 10 years. And so then he gets into it a little bit more here. He says, Paul now describes what made them so dear to him. And he says, inasmuch, it's, it's giving us the reason here now, because, that would be another way of looking at it, because you are all partakers with me of grace. And it refers to the shared receipt of God's grace positionally and practically. Both had been saved by grace and both were experiencing sustaining grace in the midst of their respective trials. Now Paul's saying, you're doing this in the same time I'm doing this. I I see how close we are because we're fellow partakers of the grace of God. That was true positionally at a moment in time where God made a way where there was no way for me to be rescued from the penalty of my sin as he paid the debt that I owed by dying in my place on Calvary. And I see that he's continued to provide everything that I needed to have a life of godliness made possible by the empowerment of his spirit living inside of me. And I see you have got to be partakers of this too. And that's what brings us this closeness, this intimacy that we otherwise wouldn't have had. See, Paul sees them as joining him practically in all aspects of the common ministry. And you look at the language, both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now, were all of these believers chained up next to Paul in Rome? No. But had they partnered with him in this mission? Yes. Now, some aspects of it was they they had sent assistance to him. In, in the form of physical assistance, the form of a person. They'd also sent financial assistance to him on more than one occasion. And it stands to reason that they were a part of praying 
for this mission. And it also stands to reason that they were actively involved in the mission in their own locale, their own location. So that's why he can say this. You've joined me in this. You've part- you're partaking of this even though you're not physically here. Now, Paul summarizes the affection he feels for these believers as a byproduct of their fellowship, mutual participation, support, and faithful focus on the common mission. That's why he's saying this. And he used, we have this next phrase here with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it indicates that his love was Christ-like and therefore spirit-produced because supernatural love requires a supernatural power source. So as he thinks about this affection that he has for them, he says it's the same kind of affection that Jesus Christ has for us. Well, that's not a human love, is it? That's a divine love. So this affection that I have for you is the same kind of affection that I learned or saw modeled in Jesus Christ, which had to be produced by the Spirit of God. That's why the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now we get into this last section where he really ramps up the prayer part of this again. So he first just starts off with my prayer is I thank God for you. And he says that he's thanking God specifically for their participation or their common association with the mission that they both have. But now he's going to say, I thank God for those things, but now I'm going to pray for these things for you. So he says, in this I pray. Now, intercessory prayer on their behalf. These are the things that I'm praying for you, and there's four of them here. I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. He says, secondly, that you may approve. I pray that you may approve the things that are excellent. Third one is, I pray that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. And the fourth one is, I pray that you would be filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we'll move through these fairly quickly, but I pray this. This is the main thought of these last verses. I pray what though? And it's this natural segue from giving thanks for these believers to making specific intercession on their behalf. Now, think about that. If you were thankful for the other believers in your life, wouldn't it stand to reason that you would tell God that? Yes, if you were a man of prayer or a woman of prayer, if you were telling God, I'm thankful for these believers in your life, wouldn't it stand to reason that you would then be praying for their spiritual well-being, for their physical well-being, for their emotional well-being, whatever they're going through, wouldn't you be praying for those things? It's just a natural byproduct of this idea that I thank God that I have these other believers in my life. Now, not everybody is, is outgoing. Some people are more introverted. Some people are really shy. Some people don't necessarily even relate all that easily with other people. Does that prevent you from thanking God that you're not alone, that you're still a part of a body of believers, even if you're somebody who maybe that comes a little harder for Don't you believe that God could actually shape you and stretch you and change you a little bit, even as it relates to those things, that he could show you and reveal places in different ways that would be unique to you where you could take advantage of and be thankful for the other believers that he's put in your life? And and the way that you would see that and interact with other believers, does it have to be the exact same way that everybody else does or the next person does? And the answer is no. It doesn't have to be, but something to think of anyway. And at a minimum, am I going to pray for the other believers that God has brought across my path in life? Well, let's look at the first one here. It's that your love may abound, and that just means be plentiful more and more or to a greater and greater degree. And this is what growth over time is all about. 
This is what spiritual maturity or this process of progressive maturity would look like. And the love that exists in abundance should be characterized by and applied with what? Knowledge and all discernment. And what kind of love is this? Well, this is God's kind of love. This is supernatural love. Now, it should exist in abundance and be characterized by and applied with knowledge and discernment. It's not love that has no knowledge behind it or understanding behind it or discernment behind it. It's to be applied with knowledge and discernment. So knowledge just means coming to understand something clearly and distinctly, and discernment just refers to the mental ability to understand and discriminate between what's right or what's not. And especially this word involves learning these things through experience, this ability to discriminate. Now, these are qualities that are provided and produced by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. You wouldn't have any ability to have knowledge and discernment if it wasn't for the Spirit of God producing them in their life. It's only the spiritual man that can have knowledge and discernment because it's the things that God produces. He says, they are foolishness to him, the things that are associated with the Spirit. The truths of God is generally what he's talking about there. God's truths cannot be understood by the natural man because he doesn't have the Spirit of God. He says, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. It's only through the empowerment of God's Spirit that that is ever true in your life. Now, the second thing he prays for, not just that you would abound, that your love would become more plentiful, God's kind of love again, but that you may approve the things that are excellent. And this word approve means to examine, test, or determine, or judge something to be genuine or good. That's a prayer that you should have for other believers, that they could learn to judge or determine whether something in their life is genuine or good. Pray that for your children. Pray that for me, that all of these things are bombarding you, and the prayer is, could these other believers, pray to God that these other believers could come to discern or could could come to a place where they could understand or determine or judge which things are actually beneficial in their lives. Now, how many of you is it, wrong, is it wrong to judge? It's wrong to be judgmental toward other people. Is it wrong to make judgments? No. Coming to a judgment is to come to a decision or make a, make a calculation about the benefit of something even in many instances. Come to a conclusion. So could you, if you're living life rubbing elbows with other believers maybe your own children, maybe your spouse, other people that you're living with, can you see them be bombarded by things that they come to accept as good or important or valuable in, your, in their lives and you watch them invest their resources into these certain things, yet knowing as hopefully led by the Spirit of God that these things are not good, these things are not useful, these things are not helpful in their lives. And that's the prayer. Aren't there people you could be praying for that God would give them the ability to discern and understand and make a good judgment about whether these things would have any value or quality in their lives? And as I think about our prayers for each other, this is a key one I want you to leave with, that we may be able to approve the things that are excellent. Because I'm convinced that so much 
about success in the Christian life comes down to your ability to discern between better and best. Which things have more value? When that, this word excellent, the things that have, are worth more, the things that are superior, the things that are of greater value and quality, which things are worth more? I actually think being able to judge between better and best is actually more important than good and evil sometimes. I think oftentimes we grow enough in our faith that we have some sense more easily of what's good and evil, but we struggle with better and best. We struggle to see that I can't, I haven't learned to see which one has more value in my life when I'm given a plethora of different options that none of which are overtly sinful. Isn't it true that when you're immature in your faith and you haven't grown, you don't have this ability to approve the things that are excellent, that you find yourself consistently picking from that a la carte list items that are not the best things for you as it relates to your spiritual well-being, yet they're not overtly sinful, but yet they're still decisions that aren't the best decisions, and they're interfering with the growth that God wants you to have in your spiritual life. Pray that for each other. Every person in this room is dealing with this issue every single day where all of these options are being put in front of you. Some of them are sinful, but, but all of these non-sinful, liberty, liberty-centric options are available. Can we learn to approve the things that are excellent? Pray that for one another. Pray that for me. That's Paul's prayer for these believers. The third thing is that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. That refers to the rapture. This word sincere involves being honest and straightforward in attitude and speech. Can we be honest and straightforward? An easy way to put this would be, can we be genuine? I pray that you would be genuine, honest and straightforward. Now, without uh, offense refers to being blameless, not causing others to stumble. So are you praying that you could avoid being like an uneven sidewalk that causes others to trip, fall, or stumble? I don't want to be the uneven sidewalk in your life, friends. Pray that for me. I don't want to be the thing that's making you stumble or trip. Am I praying that? Are you praying that? Pray that for one another. That's Paul's prayers for these believers. It, it made me think of this song. The, the actual words of the song aren't this. The, the words of the song is that the world is trying to get to you. The world still wants to get to you or something like that. And that's not even true. The world still needs to get to you, but they keep tripping over me. That's what the song says. The world still needs to get to you, God, but they keep tripping over me. Help me to not be the obstacle that is interfering with people getting to their place in spiritual, their spiritual growth or even getting to God in terms of first tense salvation because I'm the one getting in the way. Help me to be sincere and authentic and not be a stumbling block until you come to take me home, Lord. Now, the last one is that you would be filled. It says being filled, but read into the pattern here, that you would be filled with the fruits of righteousness is Paul's fourth and last prayer, specific prayer request for these believers. Now, filled involves being or becoming generously supplied or complete. 
Your cup of life is going to be filled with something. And I've spoke about this recently as we went through and talked about our cups being filled in Psalm 23. Go back and listen to that message about fill my cup, Lord, was the name of that sermon. But your, your cup is going to be filled with something. It's impossible to maintain an empty cup. As you go through life, it gets filled. So is it going to be filled with the things that, of faith? Is it going to be filled with the Spirit of God? Is it going to be filled up with the thinking and the mindset and the attitude and the perspective that God wants for you? If your cup's filled with that, then that's what will spill out of you as you hit the bumps and the obstacles and the roadblocks in life. It'll come splashing out of you. That's the thing that will sustain you then as you drink from that cup, as you go through your life, because it'll be filled with the things that can nurture you, can sustain you. But the alternative, of course, is it's going to be filled with Coca-Cola, which won't do you any good. I'm going through caffeine withdrawals here today. The acid reflux doctor said, no more Coke. You're not my accountability group, though. (laughs) Don't you dare. You just pray for me if you see a can in my hand. But he says, I want you to be filled with fruits of righteousness instead. And it identifies the substance that should be filling that cup. And of course, here's just some of them. We're not even going to read through it all, but Galatians 5, through 23 covers some of the fruits of righteousness that the Spirit wants to produce in your life. And they're none of the things that the world would fill your cup with. They're the exact opposites of what your flesh would fill your cup with. They're love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness. Well, might as well go through them all. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what God wants your cup to be filled with. Now, which are by Jesus Christ identifies the means of production or the power source for this to be true. These things are divinely produced. As you're occupied with Jesus Christ and depending on God's Spirit, these are the kinds of things that His Spirit will produce in your life. The fruits of righteousness. You don't produce them. They're produced by Jesus Christ. In John 15, 5, we see, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. And I won't belabor this point because it's one we talk about often, but this is the, how these things could be produced in your life. It's because of the working of the Spirit of God in your life because, again, with Christ we can do anything. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but without Him we can do nothing. So are you trying to accomplish this in your own strength? Having your cup filled with the fruits of righteousness? Are you trying to produce these in your life? Or are you seeing that they are by Jesus Christ? Now, what's the ultimate objective in all this? The last phrase is to the glory and praise of God. And it it identifies what is our purpose for being here. Now, our purpose is to put the spotlight on Jesus Christ, ultimately to bring Him honor and glory. As we do that, to share His message of hope with a lost and dying world, to live in a way that would exalt Him, though, that would put the spotlight on Him. All praise and glory belong to God. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In the context here, Jesus is talking to them about the mission of proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That the kingdom, sorry, the kingdom of God is at hand. That the kingdom offer is being made. Now he says to them, go present this message, this good news to these Jewish, the Jewish nation who's been waiting for Christ's return. Present this news to them. 
but shine your light to them so that they could be impacted by your mission. And it's all for God's glory. So then the question is, what is your cup overflowing with? And it's overflowing with whatever you're pouring into it. And are you living to lift Him up as you think about the glory and praise of God? Are you living for His praise and His glory? Or are you living for yourself? Because that's the default. All seek their own. So we think about this I pray. And the four specific things that Paul prayed for was that your love may abound to a greater and greater degree, that you may approve, learn to determine the things that are excellent, the things that have superior value, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, till He returns, that people wouldn't be tripping over you, that you would be filled with the fruits of righteousness as produced by Jesus Christ or the Spirit of Christ working your life all for God's glory and praise. So you think about this, I pray. Are you talking to God? Are you considering every kind of need? Do you recognize that the eternal realm and spiritual well-being are most important? And Lord willing, you are again encouraged to expand the scope of your prayers. The thing that's encouraged me the most about this series is it hasn't been that I've been convinced more to pray specifically. I've been encouraged to expand the scope of my prayers. And I hope that's been true with you as well as we keep going with this series. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend together. Thank you for your word that it can give us some guidance and direction in our lives. Pray that we would heed it. Pray that we would keep our eyes focused on you and allow your spirit to finish the work that you've started in us in terms of giving us practical victory over sin in our lives so that we could shine as bright lights for you, that we could bring you honor and glory. Thank you for all that you've done in Jesus' name. Amen. So hymn number 442, if you would stand please. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. But I know my believing and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. But I know I am believing and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. 
I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. But I know whom I am believing, and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day. I know not when my Lord may come at night or noonday fair, nor if I'll walk the veil with Him or meet Him in the air. But I know my I believe in and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day. Have a great Father's Day.